Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you today for another episode. Today, we are going to be discussing the impact of divorce on attachment and attachment security in children. And my guest is going to be Elizabeth Conrath. I had the good fortune of meeting Elizabeth through being a TheraPlay trainer. We are both TheraPlay trainers and supervisors and ended up doing some workshops together in Colorado, which is where um, Elizabeth, who I usually call Lizzie, is based. I want to tell you a little bit about her. She has devoted her career to helping children, adolescents, and adults heal from anxiety, depression, adjustment difficulties, and loss. She has extensive training in trauma, particularly working with children, adolescents, and families whose lives have been affected by physical abuse, sexual abuse, family violence, neglect, bullying, and attachment issues related to adoption. She values working with the whole family system and believes that healing trauma and improving mental wellness has to be done within the whole family dynamic. She has a goal in her work of strengthening parent-child relationships, assessing strengths and areas of growth within the caregiver dyad is also a part of that. Lizzie is trained extensively. She has lots of training in play therapy. As I said, she is a TheraPlay trainer and supervisor, but she's also a registered play therapist. Another way I've been able to interact with Lizzie is in my training that I have done for the Colorado Association of Play Therapy. Lizzie's very involved in that group. So not only is she a practitioner, but she's also working to bring in training and um, skills and support to other play therapists in her state through her involvement with the Colorado Association for Play Therapy. Uh, she uses the Marshak Interaction Method, of course, lots of other play-based developmental assessments, and she believes the power of play is a means of accessing, expressing, and processing emotions to gain empowerment and control. I adore this therapist, and um, I have had so much fun getting to know her over the years. Not only is she an exceptional therapist, but she also has the most amazing sense of humor. So uh, stay tuned, and Elizabeth Conrad will be coming right up to talk with us about 
the impact of divorce on childhood attachment. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. Hey, Lizzie, welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Good to see you again. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking back to part one of our discussion and some of the things that you ended on that I want to just wrap up a little bit more before we get into some other practical strategies that, that you use. And um, that is... You made a distinction between your work as a therapist and the custody evaluation. And I think there's probably some listeners who are conflating those or maybe even do both at the same time. I mean, I would like you to very clearly share your position on that and what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. So, and I think a lot of parents, by the way, have no idea the difference. So and you have an educational role with parents sometimes. So they are, yes, yes. they're seeking therapy, thinking that this is a person who is going to make determinations about where this child's going to live and how often they're going to spend time with this person, et cetera. Um, so I, <clears throat> excuse me, I have it in my consent form that I don't do custody evaluations. That's, and I sort of explains what that is and that that is not my role. Um, and, you know, I, I think it varies in different states, but where I practice in Colorado, there are specific people who the court will appoint, who the court is aware of and will appoint to do either CFIs or, or PREs, these, these custody evaluations that can be, um, you know, quite lengthy. But it's a person who kind of comes in, does the evaluation, talks to everybody and and their mom, you know sometimes truly their mom, they have all kinds of people and, and, you know, you'll provide, um, you speak with the therapist, all the therapists involved and the teachers, and then they'll, they'll provide friends they can talk to. And then they write up these huge reports and they make recommendations about medical decision-making and educational decision-making and, and, um, parenting time. And the reason the individual therapists, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, um, that's not appropriate for us to do is first of all, it depends on your training. You know, most of us don't have that kind of intensive training in order to be able to do that and do that well. Um, and the other is, is relationally, it's really, there's a reason that evaluators kind of come in and then they're out because they are making some really big decisions. And if, if I am attempting to work with a child and I say attempting in the sense that if, if one of the caregivers doesn't trust me, 
um, because, or is furious with me because I've made some recommendations about this child not having overnights with them or whatever, um, I'm not going to be very effective again, because I'm not just working with the child one-on-one, the system matters. And so I, I need to also have some level of trust in, you know, and not be a gatekeeper in this way of, well, I get to decide, um, And that can also influence my relationship with the child. So it's also really to kind of just protect the work that we are doing. And and that's why, you know, I don't think that it's appropriate for therapists. And it's hard because sometimes we start to think that maybe we, we could, you know, well, it doesn't seem like it's a good idea for this child to have visits with their other parent. Um, And we start to want to do that. And it can be really, really not, ethical or, I mean, it's good for us to be able to communicate if we have concerns, but we are not the people who make those choices. And that is a huge slippery slope. I think that hopefully most therapists, if they haven't learned the hard way, they can, they can hear it loud and clear now not to do that. Yeah. So just to clarify, you're saying in Colorado and probably other states that there is a, a specific person that works on the custody arrangement. It's usually a short-term role. Um, And you are very clearly separating that from a therapist who's helping the family and children work through this transition and this change. Yes, exactly. Do you ever find yourself in disagreement with the custody person or people usually come to you after that's already done or parents ever campaigning for you to tell the custody person something like, how do you do all that? Oh yes. All that stuff. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, it, I tend to be already working with the child when they start to go through that process. And that can be four or five months. Um, And also in Colorado, by the way, we have not enough evaluators. And so people are on very, very long wait lists for that to happen. Oh gosh, that can't be good. No. And then, you know, of course it's like, at least once they have that and, and, you know, they've got, they've, they've gone to court to actually get divorced. There is some settling that happens because as we all, we, we need structure we need right i'm thinking of the therapy dimensions structure exactly we need need predictability this is what we have before us to cope with this is Mm -hmm. how it's decided yep so this this is what the judge said it's on paper so you know i can do as a parent whatever i need to to kind of work through that if i disagree with it but it is what it is and there's a level of acceptance that happens and so when when that's not happened yet, it's a really big buildup of tension and conflict between parents and the kids are so aware of it. Um, and then also it is, you know, the kids will, the children are sometimes like, well, who's this lady I have to go talk to? I already have a therapist that they can be kind of confused. And so there's some level of information that they do need to know um, about why they're going to meet with this person and and what this is about. That's a whole other thing, Karen, that we haven't even touched on is just the level of information that's appropriate for children to have. Um, I find parents tend to either provide way too much or absolutely none, you know, and it is really challenging. It's so, you know, when we say, well, we need to provide developmentally appropriate. Well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And doesn't it depend on so many other factors? So that is also something that can be really challenging and important to 
as the therapist to help parents navigate that. Mm -hmm. If you are seeing a child before these decisions are made, does that evaluator usually reach out to you? Yes. Yes. So I have to be very, I mean, I will say I, I feel like having a really good working relationship with all of those people is so important. So the evaluator, the attorneys, the judges at times also, because, you know, in, in high conflict divorces, you do end up getting subpoenaed and testifying. Um, but I think that this is where I also, you know, kind of have to be very brave and be very clear with the parents. So, you know, as we've talked about, these are my concerns. I'm going to speak with the evaluator. And also these are the things I'm going to let them know. I don't want you to be surprised when they write it in the report. Um, I think the biggest challenge that I have is when evaluators don't value, don't seem to value the role of the therapist who's worked with the child. That doesn't happen often, but it's really frustrating when it does. Um, I've only once had an evaluator say, well, we've got 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, really kind of asked me almost nothing. And then they're, you know, they have a big job. They're making really long-term recommendations. And that's really hard because I'm, um, it's not that I'm necessarily wanting to influence. I just have all this information that I want them to know because it would be helpful in order for this, for this family and this child um, when, they, when they are making these big recommendations. But sometimes they don't, they don't want that or value that. Um, typically, you know, we will talk a number of times and kind of have ongoing contact throughout the process. And I think that um, they tend to understand and value and be aware of, you know, the precariousness of my role in that I have to keep working with these people. And so I have to be cautious about, you know, what I say and how I say it. And I also want to be empathic that I'm meeting people in a real crisis. And so um, recognizing that parents are doing the best that they can. And here's the impact that it seems to be having on this job. Mm -hmm. What about something that we're seeing a, a phrase that's been brought up in the last years, and I see more trainings on it, parental alienation. I wonder if you can make some comments of that just in general and from an attachment perspective. Sure. Well, we've got seven hours to go. Sorry. <laughs> So I mean, just a few sentences on that, and then we'll move on. <laughs> That's not there is uh, there is so so much on parental alienation. I think the the I guess the main points are the difference between alienation and estrangement. Um, and so alienation is you know this kind of it, it and there used to be we used to call oh, I don't know, we've called it all kinds of things. There's the parental alienation syndrome. There's an attempt to alienate that, you know, there's all kinds of layers. It's not in the DSM, but it is something that I think we of course hear about all the time. And there are, there's some really interesting research and articles that explain what it is. It's a huge division in the, in our, um, not just in our field as therapists, but in society, it's kind of a gender issue um, because it was sort of started as a lot of people being critical of women who were, attempting to get custody. And so it became this kind of feminist issue. Anyway, um, mm -hmm. alienation is basically a campaign and where one parent is 
really against and turning the child against the other parent. And so if a child then is successfully alienated, they will not want contact with the other parent, or they will have this kind of narrative that daddy's bad, he can't take care of me, et cetera. That typically doesn't, the the cutting off of contact is more common statistically with teenagers, um, but alienation or attempts to alienate can occur for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then estrangement happens when there's been not great parenting. So there's a, there's potentially a justifiable reason that the child doesn't want contact. So maybe there was abuse um, or neglect or intimate partner violence. And so th- that's different. And I think what's really hard is that there are in, in my with my cases, there are a lot of accusations of alienation Um And sometimes it's really hard to know, is this estrangement? Is this actually justified because of what this child has experienced with this other parent, what's happened in their relationship? And if that's the case, it's important to know so that we can get this other parent some help to shift and then be healthy enough to build a different relationship with their child. Mm -hmm. It might be that that parent isn't actually safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a lot being written now about estrangement. I just um, recently did a podcast interview with a person that specializes in that. And, you know, there's some ways that professionals are really contributing to that, not in a good way as well. So yeah, these are, wow. Uh, thank You are brave. This is not for the faint of heart. Because <laughs> I think, you know, I so appreciate you saying, I, I predict that they'll be angry at me because I think a lot of times therapists really walk on eggshells with parents and avoid saying what may be most helpful to say because they don't want to have to weather that anger. So I really appreciate what you're doing with this work instead of like scurrying away and hiding. (laughs) I know. Some of the therapists who scurried and hid would maybe come out because it's, it also is so important and it can be, you know, I've also had the experience where what typically happens is there there tends to be in, in our, in the United States, really a, a primary parent. And then the secondary parent, sometimes those things are fairly close, but usually there's a pretty big gap, you know? And so, when there's a divorce and one of the beautiful things that can happen is this secondary parent now is really building, maybe, maybe rebuilding, but often for the first time creating this very close relationship with their children. Um, And I've heard children say, well, I never really spent that much time with my other mom, you know, or um, now I play with my other mom all the time and she used to just work and you know so it's very that can be a really lovely experience to help try to help facilitate um but you know it is hard and i and and i think it's such an important especially therapists who really understand attachment i just feel like that is um there's some good literature out there but i do think a lot of the the legal court system the evaluators are not considering the importance of attachment in not just again in the child but in the attachment in terms of what's going on with the parents um and that is just so kind of missed so i i would hope that people who are listening to your podcast can 
could hear this and say, yes, it's hard, but there's a need for it. And it's really, it can be really rewarding too. Yes. Yes. Well, one of the things that I also say, sorry, Karen, to myself and, and to kind of help me be brave is, you know, if this child grows up and comes back to me in their thirties or forties and, and says to me, why didn't you ever tell my dad that when he did that, that wasn't okay. Why didn't anyone ever tell them? Mm-hmm. And I need to be able to, you know, have that integrity for myself and also thinking about the future of this person that is, that I can say, you know, I, I, I was not contributing to that system continuing by, by not saying something in the ways that I could, I was trying very hard to be very clear. This is not good for your child. You need to stop. You need to stop saying whatever it is you're saying about their dad. You don't want to have regrets that you knew something should have been said, but you were too scared to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This idea about attachment and whether or not people are sensitive to that when making some of these decisions. And we obviously don't have time to go into this in depth, but just that is such an area of misinformation. Um, There's a great article by every known attachment researcher, I think in the world (laughs) um, called attachment goes to court and that is in my attachment-based therapist Facebook group as a file. It's accessible online. I know you and I have spoken about it, but just some of these ideas, like incorrect ideas, like um, secure attachment means the child will not cry. You know, they'll never cry or they will cry or, you know, just like one specific behavior somebody is trying to decide or not even, probably I'm I'm being um gracious thing secure attachment because usually it's like strong attachment is this and weak attachment is this and what mm-hmm. we know is that that's kind of not really how it works there right. are various presentations that can be very strong because of what we said earlier they're attached to survival so it doesn't we, we don't really look at it as strong and weak <laughs> right exactly right so there's just like I think a lot of good things that that they talk about in that article that are really important for people to know because attachment theory is being used in a lot of erroneous ways in situations like this. I think you would agree with that. Yes. Yes. And I mean, and then there's, there's attachment theory and then there's also, which this is another zig and zag, but, and then there's attachment parenting. Yeah, um, I think sometimes, and I'm in Boulder, so there's a lot of people who who are really um, bless them. They they you know think that that is what their child needs, and then that and and you and I have talked about this. I know at length, Karen, about the difference between um, attachment theory, attachment parenting, and then also you know just kind of the labeling that occurs all the time around children being diagnosed with this thing and that thing. And it's like, well, actually their symptoms are responses that make a lot of sense for the environment that they're in. And now yes. we're pathologizing the a child here. Yes, 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 exactly. Well, I know that you said 
people get focused on how many nights here, how many nights there. And that's really not the crux of the issue. But are there some things that you would share that you feel are more ideal and less ideal with with some of these custody arrangements? Um, or is that something you completely leave to the the person deciding that or what any thoughts? <laughs> That you yeah, have about I that. try. I try to. Of course, I have thoughts and, and I have opinions. And and then you know, in my individual clinical work, I try to be very well. Let's you know, stay out of that. About this tends to be better. But you know, what I mean, there's a few. The main thing that actually is the most helpful is nesting, which people in this country, parents cannot typically cannot do it. It's too hard, which is the child stays put and the parents rotate in and out. Um, and I do tend to say to parents, have you ever heard of this? And they tend to respond, oh my God, I could never do that. That would be awful, you know, and, and how could we, and, and financially, it actually makes more sense to have you know one smaller apartment for just one person and then they keep their house right so it is better to when there is a huge disruption in the family like the parents are now no longer living together um the fewer transitions the better so you know it is better if a child isn't switching schools it's better if they're not moving to two different houses um but but adults can't do that. And I tend to bring that up to parents just to say, so just keep that in mind that that, but this is what you're having your child do, go back and forth and move every few days or every week. And so with that, they are, you know, the challenge with the shorter schedule is that the child is constantly in this preparing to go actually going now adjusting to the new place and then the next day oh now i got to prepare to go and so you know i think some some people would say that that is too much transition for the child that's too much back and forth they can never really settle in and that makes sense however much younger children really need more frequent contact with each parent so five days is a really long time for them to go without seeing one parent so um you know nesting is kind of would be great for the child, but the grownups can't do it. And so that- And they do, but you're saying you they do do it some places more often than the US or- Yes. So it, it's- I don't know exactly where, but I know that it's, I mean, I think it's probably Denmark. It's like, or, you know, these countries yeah. that are just so much healthier with some of these things than we are. Yes. Um, so what about the other end of the continuum that I, I have sometimes seen where- the parents are divorced, but they remain in the household, the same household. Yes, ladding. No, it's, not, it's, it's not the nesting, like they're not in and out. They're all staying in the same place. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've heard that's called ladding, living alone together or something, <laughs> which is basically like, you know, you're you're co-parenting um, and you're not married. And I, and I, I think that that, you know, and sometimes it'll be, you know, one parent lives in the basement and they have separate bedrooms and... I think what's interesting is that can be really confusing for a child. Like they're they're So again, we're still modeling all the time. Kids are learning even when we don't want them to be. And what is it that they're learning here? I mean, they might be really learning that we can um, not be married and get along and be just fine and have some clear boundaries around mom's time and other mom's time or, you know, what's going on with, with that. It tends to be really challenging because they still 
are fighting. They're either fighting silently and non-verbally or they're arguing. And then, so now the child is around that all the time and the parent isn't getting a break from the other parent. Um, so that can be, you know, again, it's like, eh, it can be, there are definitely advantages to it. And then there are things about it that are hard. It depends on how the parents can navigate that. Mm-hmm. And so you're not one to say for a really young child, the, this, they're here this many days and they're here that many days is the ideal or you, you try to, well, I, I mean, it, I, I feel like, you know, Diane Sawyer or something like really, I know I'm like, Karen, gosh, you're making me sweat. No, I, <laughs> I, mean, I do think that I do think, of course, like for even I have, um, you know, teenagers who will go three weeks, like in the summer without seeing their other parent. And what kind of happens is they really compartmentalize. And so they like, in order to stop missing mom, they're not calling, texting. They're, they're, they're sort of really severing that relationship for three weeks, a long time. Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the best thing is that there is fluidity and flexibility around contact with the other parent and openness to that and, and having dinner real quick with mom on, you know, that day, cause it's a longer stretch say, but I mean, it, it is better for, for younger children to have shorter times, you know, a couple days, like in, in Colorado, they tend to do, which I think is actually appropriate. The three, two, two, three schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's harder. For that, could you explain that briefly? What that is? If they're with parent A for three days, then they go to parent B for two days, then they go to parent A for two days, then they're back to parent B for three. Okay. It, it changes the week. So it's kind of hard then for parents, especially if you have two parents who work for money to kind of, you know, schedule all the things and they have to coordinate a lot more. Mm-hmm. And if they are not getting along, coordinating and contacting each other creates a lot of stress. Um, but that tends to be better because they have more frequent contact with both parents. And it kind of does force parents to have a professional working relationship, which I'm not saying they need to go to the extreme of, I mean, I would love it if parents bought the same books. And so when you're with me, I'm reading this and then I text your dad and tell you we stopped on page 78 and then pick up. Yeah. But that, you know, for some reason, it's very, very hard to to do things like that. These are all things that are much better for the child. If we can have that kind of fluidity back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And and now I've lost track of what I was saying about, oh, but, you know, so for younger kids, it is, it is better. And also knowing that the transition is really, really hard. I had, I had two children I was working with and they one time were just so fed up with the going back and forth. They're so, kids are so amazing with their behaviors and what they communicate. And they decided we're going to pack up every single stuffy in our house. And they took they made, they were like an hour late. They got every duffel bag. And I mean, they filled their parents SUV full of these duffel bags of stuffies and they made her carry them all out <laughs> to the car. And, you know, and, and she fortunately understood and was like, they're just really letting me know how hard this is. So, and like, literally I can feel the weight of having to do this and that what, what that's like for them that they have to pack up every few days and go. And, um, 
and she let them do it. And I think it was, you know, and then of course the, there was conflict because then the dad didn't want to have to bring them on the house. And um, there's some, there's some other things that I think can be helpful, like simple things, which is that you never have like for, for parents to not go pick up the child. They always are dropped off somewhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids do um, transitions at schools. And I think that that, can be helpful because then the parents don't have to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, a lot of parents kind of get really into the weeds around, well, do we do a Friday transition? Do we do a Sunday? You know, I think the main thing to think about is it's hard for children to transition. So whatever day is going to make that a little bit easier for them. Some kids, it's a couple hours. Some kids, it's a whole 24 hours. If they, if it takes them longer and it's harder, maybe we want to do that at the start of the weekend. So we've got Mm -hmm. some time together before you have to go to school on Monday. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe they want to start right away with some structure and go to school, you know, so we transition on Sunday and then we kind of picking up and just going right into the week. But all of those things, it's kind of like, eh, neither is, both are okay. Neither is going to be great. We just have to work with um, what this child is needing. Mm -hmm. And then I thinking as you're talking, getting back to some of the things that you said earlier, you're looking for the best routine in terms of when the child is where, yes, but even, and that, that is hard and something to put thought into, but even more important is what happens when they're with you. (laughs) Yes. And and don't get so caught up on that, that you're missing the opportunities when you're with them to reestablish this safe haven, secure base, however we want to refer to it. Exactly. And again, you know, depending on where we're living and sometimes parents do have to move. I mean, financially, that's what has to happen. And to help parents know that if they are the safe haven and secure base, wherever they are, is this child. Mm-hmm. You oh, know? That is such so- a great final I know we're almost out of time but that is such a great ending comment that is so powerful Mm -hmm. and I think that can be really hopeful for parents too that oh yeah wherever if if we're together I'm your home and so it's okay if we're even if we're moving that I can provide this safety and security and predictability for this child I love that I love that so let's assume maybe you um encouraged or uh, gave someone more bravery about doing this and they want to think they're like i i want to learn more about this i want to start doing this i mean is there certain trainings you would recommend or books you would recommend or i mean you're obviously you have read a lot of research and you know what you're talking about and you know what you're doing and that takes a long time to to establish that knowledge base but if somebody wanted to pursue understanding this more, what would you recommend? Lynn Louise Wonders, steps. <laughs> Lynn Louise Wonders has a, an amazing, and I think it's like all on telehealth now, um, training that you can do. And I think it, particularly for play therapists, it's um, it's very comprehensive um, and it's really affordable too for what it is. And she has all kinds of specialists. And um, I think that that is, that's, a, a wonderful kind of all-encompassing training that people can okay. take. Mm-hmm. There's um, and there's a lot of podcasts that are I don't even know off the top of my head. If you just like Google uh, high conflict divorce, are the ones I listen to. There's one called "It's All Your Fault" that's great, and that's more about just working with 
high conflict people. So it might be in a work environment, but it often tends to be really helpful for therapists, I think, to, to help us learn the skills of how do I interact with somebody who is pushing boundaries and trying to, um, and you know, doesn't like the boundaries that I'm holding and is emailing me and texting me all the time. And so some of those, um, podcasts are really wonderful. There's the association of family and conciliation courts, which is like a, a membership that is, they put out great trainings in terms of parental alienation and, um, and all of that stuff, Amy Baker is, and again, people can just like Google or look on YouTube. She has wonderful, really helpful videos and trainings. Um, and um, Barbara Fiddler is another person. So, I mean, I think, and and she has like a, also a whole institute with, and a model and, and trainings and um, all kinds of resources that therapists can dive into. I feel like this is how... I am with all things as a therapist, which is I could just focus on learning this for the rest of my career and still feel like I barely scratched the surface, you know, um, like we've talked about with Sandra, it's like, I could, yes. I could learn everything that that's out there. And I still am like, um, I only have a little bit of knowledge for how much is out there. Mm-hmm. Well, those are some really good starting points. And, and I also, the idea that we've talked about throughout you have to have a certain amount of confidence and ability to weather conflict um, too. Like I, I feel like the health of the therapist, the sturdiness of the therapist, the therapist having their own secure base. Completely. Having a great team of colleagues that I can also just kind of vent to like, eh, you know, yes. Um, yes. talk to, you know, my husband about it. Um <laughs> And having, of course, consultation, I have someone that I'm like, there are, there are periods of time, there are seasons where I feel like I'm just giving him my paycheck because I just need to talk through, you know, I've been doing this yes. for many years, but there, it just is so, so challenging. So yes. um, it's really important to have ongoing support and, um, and of course, you know, boundaries. I mean, we, I'll get an email and if I'm not being boundaried, I'll check my email at, you know, 10 o'clock on a Friday night. And it's like, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah. I got this email from a parent and they're just going off. Um, and now I can't sleep. And, you know, so I think yes. having, having, for me, I have young children and they force me to be boundaried because I don't check my phone at 10 o'clock because I'm asleep. <laughs> I'm yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm spending a lot of time with them when I'm not working. So that of course helps me yes. to, you know, keep things separate and be present when I'm with them. All right. Well, thank you so much um, for this. It's just thank you for having me. It's so great to chat with you. Yes. All right. Well, bye-bye for now. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 